you were saying you've turned a corner in the reading of Hegel. <laughs> well, okay. So, I mean, I, I'll give you a little bit of the process just mm-hmm. to, just to contextualize. But I, as I told you, I start. I'm writing this thing right now. It's going to be probably, I think, like the first chapter or chapter she thing for the book on um, genealogy and the master slave and blah blah blah. And so, of course, I, I just ended up, I think it's probably just because, obviously, Hegel's been on my mind, but it's like, you know, I just kind of want to pursue this. Well, some people have written about it, right? Like mm-hmm. the relationship between Hegel's version of master-slave and, and Nietzsche's version right. of master-slave. And um, the, the thing that became very clear to me reading, and by the way, not a lot of people have written about it, which is something that actually surprised me a great deal. Like, there's not a ton of stuff there. Or maybe there's chunks of chapters somewhere that I didn't find, but in terms of articles, mm-hmm. um, or certainly not books, like, I mean, there was a very limited, I mean, like, ten things. Like, not a whole lot of stuff. And so I, I went through those things. And um, the thing that became, became pretty clear to me is that Deleuze is the guy who installs this notion of an antagonism Mm -hmm. between Hegel and Nietzsche. Right. Um, And, and so that, that just, you know, that made me pause a little bit, like, because like Walter Kaufman and other, you know, Walter Kaufman is the big Nietzsche translator and also Mm -hmm. early, you know, sort of existentialist oriented um, writer on Nietzsche. And he sees, you know, a kind of and and most did prior to Deleuze see like hey these are very similar thinkers and mm-hmm. um, the the word the phrase that I really really liked to describe um, he- Hegel and Nietzsche both was that they're both dialectical monists mm. which I I like that phrase like it's right. it's a monistic word but now I I would not describe Nietzsche as a dialectical monist but I describe him as an agonistic monist right. Right, so it's they're not terribly far afield from that mm-hmm. agonistic or, or, or dialectical uh, distinction. So in any case, it's like this Deleuze's book is that that Nietzschean philosophy, nineteen sixty two. Like that's that's the moment where this argument began of like, you know, the Deleuzeans don't like Hegel or whatever. Right, and um, and I I also remembered from my last reading, uh, the last time that I read Nietzschean philosophy, which I can't remember, but it's not too long ago. Um, that I was really, I really accentuated. Did, didn't we do it this summer? Did we do it this summer? Yeah, yeah we okay. did that, that chapter, yeah. The last chapter, right, right. So in that last chapter, I mean, and something that I kind of emphasized a lot in my reading was that he, he both establishes them as opposites and undercuts the establishing of opposition, mm-hmm. right? Like, and that's the part that is totally missing from the reception, yeah. the undercutting of the opposition, so, because, I mean, Deleuze says very, very clearly, like, from the perspective of dialectics, Hegel and Nietzsche are opposites. But from the perspective of Nietzsche, they're just different, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he, you know, in other words, that opposition is the slave way of thinking, you know, uh, right. for Deleuze. So, so the idea that Deleuze simply installs an opposition between Hegel, which is the sort of received story. Deleuze is the guy, he installs an opposition, but that's way way too simplistic and it really just kind of got me like well I would say the easiest way of saying it is I, I, I think I started reading Hegel a little more sympathetically yeah um, and like I said a little a little bit less suspiciously um, I still have I don't think that I've lost the reservations that I've had as we've talked throughout but I really see what he's doing now like I really see it as committed to process thinking mm-hmm 
you know, and that's all. And the section that we read for today is just so clear on that. Like his, his beef with math is entirely that there's no process, right? right? It, it's concerned with sort of results and proof, you know, and it just eliminates the movement of the thing. Now, again, I still have these issues with like its own and the necessity of the movement coming from inside itself and then mm-hmm. the metaphorics of that. But I do think that, you know, following Zizek, it's also been reading the Malibu and, and Zizek. Um, but there are ways of undermining, I mean, and it's not hard. Or there are ways of reading Hegel against the grain in that sense. And it's not difficult to do when he says, you know, the movement comes from within itself. It's easy to show how that's not really within itself. Mm-hmm. That the within itself is is already a sort of result of an extrinsic or external Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, force so so nevertheless like uh, the result for me has simply been like you know I just feel I'm I'm reading it way more sympathetically than I was over the last uh, you know over the summer when we were doing the majority of these videos so. well the yeah well, the, the the critique of math in this section parts of it maybe just because I've been trying to to sort of synthesize the Deleuzian and the Hegelian positions if you want to call them that but I thought there were moments where Hegel's focus on contingency and becoming, even if the dynamics of that becoming are, are different and even crucially different mm-hmm. from Deleuze's, there were portions where it's like, that could have been a Deleuze sentence yeah, here and there. I with agree. The, with the, way he's, the way he's confronting the representationalism that's sort of inherent to math. And, and, then, Ka- and Kant's version. And in Kant, yeah. and then offering the alternative in its nation form there. Uh, I don't know. It, it didn't read to me as like anti Deleuze in any way. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. I think you can read him generously too on the sort of inside outside distinction as well, because I mean the problem with math for him is that it creates a bunch of equations, but no particular like because an equation is always a resting place. There is nothing about right. that dynamic. There's no essential inequality or difference that that leads to its self-transformation and so you know i don't think that you need to read a stark binary between the inside and the outside to get at the kind of imminent self-overcoming that he's talking about to say like i mean which is to say like which is to say that there cannot be an inside a pure inside at all because that would be an equation ultimately it is math that creates right. both the, the pure inside as the equation and then the pure outside that has to put one equation in relationship That's to right. another one. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, you, you bring this, you just brought this up, but that was most striking to me was Hegel on equality sounds just like Nietzsche on equality. Right. I mean, they, they really like as uh, that these concepts, they're static concepts. They don't, or rather, they're not concepts for Hegel because that would be, you know, they're not notions. But yeah. but nevertheless, like it's it's their antagonism or um, frustration with the, with the idea of equality. They both share it. Now, there's a huge difference because for Hegel, it has to get to opposition in order for it to be not equality, and that's not true for Nietzsche, right? Like so, in other words, diff- that's where difference multiplicity. I still think is the, uh, the non-systematic response to this. But still, in terms of the thinking of equality, they both are deeply skeptical of it as a founding uh, a concept for math. I'm on 46, uh, paragraph 46, towards the bottom. 
And yeah, again, we have the slightly different translations. But uh, he goes, the principle of magnitude, um, or the principle of the conceptless difference, and the principle of equality, or that of abstract lifeless unity, are incapable of dealing with that pure restlessness, restlessness of life and its absolute difference. And to me, again, like he, he complicates it and he gets into the more phenomenological determinations later. But that the pure restlessness of life and its absolute difference, that to me sounds like a Nietzschean or a Deleuzean sentiment there. Totally. Like, I agree. You, mean, you could have cut that right out of either of them. And that, mm-hmm. that basic critique of representationalism there, to me, is like, I don't know, it, it just seems directly related to, uh, to Deleuze's critique of the same thing in yeah. both What is Philosophy and kind of in the, the Nietzsche and Philosophy book as well. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if you know what's translated here is the notion is the concept, right? I mean, if that's yeah. what the begriff, right? Like that—that's right. the what, the word that we would normally use. I mean, I think that you're spot on, right? But it's the reason there that the concept in early in difference and repetition, the concept is bad, right? Representation, mm-hmm. the concept is the form of representation. But right. what is philosophy? I think that you're spot on. Like that's where the concept is the sort of self. Not again. We have to be careful with all these words, but these self-moving, trans, self-transformative uh, entity, right. you know, and and that's what it sounds like here. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's like what is philosophy's thinking of the concept is freaking Hegel's uh, uh, concept of the concept. <laughs> exactly. Well, the concept in Hegel here is attentive to that difference, whereas in math, yeah. the the lifeless concept right. is just merely applied to life. It's a it's a lifeless unity. Right, so the, those yeah. delineations between now, I don't know how useful it is. Sorry, I might be jumping ahead a little bit, but to like name people, we've done we tried to do this a few times. Like, is Descartes a target here? Like, is rationalism right. sort of a name for this mathematical thinking? I mean, it doesn't yeah. really matter because I know that he goes through all these targets in the preface. He kind of starts with empiricism, I think, moves through Spinoza, who's a weird. I don't even really know how to label him. And now we're on math. And I'm just, I I was wondering, we don't have to answer this right now, but like how each of those targets relate to each other. Because you usually think of empiricism as being the opposite or a completely different approach uh, from math, right? Or like from rationalism, at least from when their inception. But uh, he seems to... Moving back in time, we go to... Um, Descartes, maybe Leibniz would be a little bit right, right. Well, I guess, and Kant, Kant is explicitly named soon after this. Yeah. So, um, but it was just, it was just interesting to me because I, I thought about this in a seminar paper a while ago, and I think probably a bunch of people have written this, but like the opposition between the empiricist movement and the rationalist movement during that time period, they were directly opposed to each other, right? And yeah. one of them is explicitly inductive, right? Em- empiricism is the sort of more hu- uh, humble approach, right? Where you you don't yeah. start with a theory, you start with observation and experimentation and then right. derive a theory from that. Whereas Descartes' rationalism applies a theory first and then, you know, observes matter after that. So, But to me, it's like they, they're both confronting and kind of suppressing the same, the problem that Hegel's trying to articulate, which is yeah. the, the movement of conceptuality itself. Like that's what they're both alighting um, in those because they're both looking for propositional truth, right? Right. Whether right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I was just going to say, John, so I, I wanted to speak a little bit to your hesitancy on the inside-outside um, dichotomy where you're like, you have to be careful about this whole self-moving yeah. thing. And I think there's a maybe a helpful way of, of nuancing between two notions of the inside or of, of imminence, right? Because, you know, if we're thinking in the Aristotelian tradition or like the Platonic tradition of like why something that is self-moving is somehow simply better than things that are not moving, it's because there is like the, the self-moving becomes a property of a stabilized thing, right? So it is, so, you know, the, um, the uh, self-moving thing, like the soul or whatever else, uh, that is, um, it, it, it maintains its integrity through its movement, right? Mm -hmm. And part of, and, and it's, it's equally important that it self-moves and that it maintains its integrity as it moves. But the second mm -hmm. notion of, of self-movement like takes on a notion of the self that is already punctured, that is already sort of folded between yeah. the inside and the outside. So for th that self-movement, it, it, it is not just the displacement of, of, a, um, of something that, has, that maintains its integrity, but it is reconstituted, its movement is its own reconstitution, which means that it is already opened up to the outside. And I think that the the, problem, the beef that Hegel has here, and I think I'm just now rearticulating what I said before, but the, the problem that, that Hegel has with, with the, um, uh, uh, with mathematical or propositional truth to begin with is that because it's closed off because it deals with like it it does maintain its integrity it can't self-transform right there mm -hmm. it can have no self-movement because self-movement would necessarily lead to its its own transformation it is too mm -hmm. impregnable as it were right mm -hmm. well there's no room for the self in this form of mathematics, right? That there's not even, like, it, it almost has to be removed for that kind of uh, thinking to work. And this is something that I keep running up against when I try to think about both, like, traditional Newtonian physics and math and stuff like this. Because the issue with math is not math in itself, like, or its function. Like, it, it works, right? Like, it, it has yeah. functions in the world, and it works. And fi Newtonian physics is the same thing. I mean, you can build stuff with that kind of non-theoretical or non-quantum version of physics. The issue seems to be, uh, maybe this is reductive, but for Hegel, is that it doesn't simply rest at its function, right? So it's functional, it works in the world to an extent, but it wants to also contain truth about the world. So the, well, that, the reach, that, yeah, it's the, the reach question to the of philosophical status, right, yeah. right. So that when it when it becomes a philosophy, which it always already was, um, that's when it becomes problematic because it's like it's an, there's an arrogance to it, um, and so when that kind of representationalist thinking infiltrates all thinking to some extent, right, like with, in terms of Heidegger's critique of like humanism and representationalism, that's when you that's when you uh, encounter like political and ethical problems, right. I would even push that further that Hegel has a problem with the functional notion of mathematics as well, precisely because math can't function, right? Math can only represent itself. It only, right. 
like, you know, take whatever mathematical formula and it only takes itself as, as its object that mm -hmm. to then take a mathematical formula, like a series of mathematical formulas and apply it to a ravine where I want to build the bridge is now a non-mathematical application of mathematical equations. Because like, you know, this right. is what he, he's going on. He, he, the, whenever he's talking about magnitude and space and, and times, like, look, math doesn't take the world as its object. It takes an abstracted notion yeah. of time and space and then differentiates orders of magnitude within that, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why, like, if you actually were able to set math out into the world, it would undo itself and become something else. The math... This is what I mean by the self, not like right, the subjective right. uh, human psyche, but like the self-same proposition, you know, E equals MC squared is a self-contained entity that cannot refer to anything beyond itself. Right. Well, I guess I'm conflating like math in itself and then in its practical application. I suppose I was taking for granted that math is right, always right. sort of like it's loosely because with, with physics, like, right you're applying theorems, but you're, there's also a lot of experimentation and observation that, that accounts for that contingency that math can't account for, right? So there's always the combination uh, in engineering whatever with the, like, the sort of abstract a priori theorems and then their practical application and then working them out in physical space. Does that make any sense? So I, when I was saying yeah. like yeah. that math works, I think I was just like taking for granted that it's always like sort of massaged in a way in its practical application yeah. well and he, he but, says there's there's one point where he makes a comment like that is that you know you could even add in a little bit of contingency and get something better uh th this method and he's talking here about math this is in in paragraph 48 mm -hmm. uh you don't have to go to it because it's just a incidental comment but it's peculiar to mathematics that yada yada this method in a looser form i.e more blended with the arbitrary and the accidental may retain its place as in conversation or in a piece of historical knowledge designed rather to satisfy curiosity than to produce knowledge, which is what a preface amounts to, right? Like, in other words, like, you, could, mm. you can throw some contingency into mathematics and have it be, more, have it be functional in, in the right, terms right. that we're talking about. Do you guys know if someone's written a book on math and philosophy? Like, you know, like... Oh, there's not, a whole not a, era. Fair not an that, expert yeah. expert book, but I mean, so, like an introduction, because it just seems to me like the relate. I mean, it's it's been a troubled relationship since Plato, right? Like, yeah. I mean, we mm -hmm. had the 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 slave drawing the diagram in the in the sand, you know, that that relationship is one. I mean, here it's it's being made explicit, but I mean, and and it is this idea of the claim to universality, right? Like mm -hmm. that that math reveals something called truths that are absolute and everywhere like 180 degrees in a triangle you know i mean right. th those sorts of things and and that has often and in many places been the aspiration of philosophy um, right is to reveal those uh always and for everywhere truths for some for some philosophers now again i mean to me what you were saying about inside outside uh uh in the previous part of the conversation, Nathaniel is like would be so much easier if you just added in perspectivism. You know, if you just said like from the perspective of, you know, the entity, it looks like it's self-moved. From the perspective of the exterior, it looks. Like, you know what I mean? Like if you just added in different. That's what Nietzsche does, is that it's just 
And so, you know, truth is not, I mean, in this sense, this is where, I mean, interestingly enough, while the thinking might have lots of overlap, this is a thinking that is still totally dedicated to truth mm-hmm. in ways that Nietzsche's is a total questioning of the viability of truth or the usefulness or the, you know, and, and that's, that's a major, because to me, I, I still think that Deleuze's, I mean, I, I'm still invested in the, in the Deleuze's interest where it's like, look, there's something about the tone or my terms of style that negation brings with it. And, and I think that's getting kind of close to what that tone is here is that, that systematic drive towards truth is still very much a part of this discourse, even if the thinking has very similar contents, you know? Right. Well, for Nietzsche, there's no, there's no truth. Like we're not going to get a better understanding. It's not like mathematical knowledge is lesser. I mean, for Hegel, mathematical knowledge is lesser knowledge for all of the reasons that we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it does not reach the level of philosophical knowledge because it's not, it's not truth in the in the you know important way. Right. Well, it doesn't. Inc- I mean, it, in really simple terms, it just doesn't incorporate the movement of the concept into the system. Right. And so, That's right. the 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 really common easy critique of math that any like eighth grader could uh, could ascertain is 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 here where it's like math is too abstract. Like I don't know what to do with it. It doesn't right. seem to be attached to the world in any way. So you you do an equation, you're like, how does this relate to life in in any real way? Right. You see that here, but the the slightly more important twist, I think, is Hegel's actually saying it's not only too abstract, it's also not abstract enough. Not abstract in the, enough. In the sense yeah. that it's not attentive to its movement of abstraction. So that's right. that's the, that's when you take the step from the understanding, which is that violent, abstracting force, which is the the motor of mathematics or that version of rationalism, and then you start. It's just a, sh- a simple shift in perspective where you start, like just recognizing that movement, and so you incorporate right. that movement into the system as opposed to just simply suppressing it. Um, right. Which I think is Although, what he's can, calling I for. I want to yeah. ask you guys, I mean, one of the big questions that I have in this past, like, I don't know if this goes too far into 37, page 37, sorry, like paragraph 59, but, well, there's some of it earlier. Uh, the, the, the notion of the, the um, <clears throat> okay, so, like, if we look at, for instance, paragraph 53, mm-hmm. Section 53, which for us is divided into two really big, long paragraphs. The second one beginning, Nathaniel, on page 32 there, with even when the specific determinantness, say one like magnetism, is itself concrete or real, the understanding degrades it into something lifeless. Like so, And what I'm raising into question here is the function of the understanding. Because mm-hmm. in this passage, the understanding seems like it's the thing that rigidifies. Right, which which I read is like okay, so here's what kind of understanding as a faculty, right? As, as a faculty, it's a faculty that suppresses movement, right? Mm-hmm. That that sort of isolates out. So the understanding degrades it into something lifeless, and yet in other places, I feel like the understanding is precisely the thing that's necessary to you know to to get at the notion. And so that I just right. found this. It was just a question. 
you know, like a little bit above that. The understanding in its pigeonholing process keeps the necessity and the notion of the content to itself, right? So here, the understanding is that is sort of what I would call like that which taxonomizes, right? Mm -hmm. Like that which puts things into a grid, and um, which which again is a necessary part of the process of recognizing that there is a grid and that one is gridifying, right. you know, things. So, I mean, maybe I'm answering my own question, I guess, is that, but, but it, so at moments the understanding seems like it's this delimiting force and at other moments it seems like it's this un, undelimiting force. It's that mm -hmm. which is, is putting things into motion, I guess. So yeah. that, that was just a question. It seems there seems to be two movements of, of understanding, and this, I mean, this seems to be pretty consistent for a while, but what we just read today, for today, think about when he's talking about the triangle, and he's like, look, the first movement of the understanding, you know, like you start with the simplicity, to, um, to bring this back out to the, to the general more, um, to the preface more generally, like he, he always begins with a, uh, one version of a simplicity, that then needs to be differentiated and um, and taxonomized and then brought back to a second simplicity, right? And he sort of localizes that example with the triangle, is understanding, you know, the Euclidean relationships of the right triangle. It's like that first motion of the understanding breaks it up into these discrete parts, and those parts do not refer to the triangle, but refer to other figures like you know, a right angle and squares and whatever else. And then it's only once you're able to put those parts back together, which is the second movement of understanding that you have the, 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 the notion of the right triangle as, um, uh, as, a, as a living concept, as a living truth, um, and which, which is not simply reducible to the proposition. Um, and this is before he goes into just wholesale mm -hmm. critiquing mathematics. And so when I, when I read a sentence like that, you know, that um, the understanding degrades it into something lifeless, I, I immediately think that this is that first movement of, of the understanding, which has to take the concept like magnetism and then it has to separate it from everything else in order to be able to figure out the other component parts before it gets put all back together right. again into a second simplicity. Yeah, and this is one of the the tricky things for me, and it's not it's not explicitly laid out in this section, I don't think, but the understanding, sort of like Foucault's notion of power, it's only functional if it's basically unnoticed. So like, sort of with sense certainty, right? Like, when to in order to perceive your world, and identify objects and identify yourself within the world, that process of sensuate, whatever, I don't even know what to call it, sensuality, sense certainty, yeah. has to be masked somehow. So it has to sort of run smoothly and you, you can't be consciously aware of it. That to me is, is part and parcel of also the function of the understanding, if you can even separate that from, from sense certainty. So the, the weird thing for me is that for Hegel, like you were just saying, John, like the understanding is both like sort of the, the enemy and the savior of yeah, like, yeah. It's which like is the, appropriate. I mean, that's right. appropriate. And you, and you have to hold the, both of those kind of in mind. I mean, that's kind of the, the movement of the dialectic where previously in the preface, he says the understanding is like the most spectacular feat of humanity. That's right. That's what allows that's us right. to taxonomize and 
whatever, appropriate the world and all that. But here it's the explicit enemy. It's you have to sublate it somehow, not for a higher form of thinking, but you simply have to take it into account, which is precisely what it doesn't allow. The understanding doesn't allow you to take it into account. So what, so how do we get to like the next step, which is reason or self-consciousness, which is like the good thing for Hegel. It's still a little confusing for me, but I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. And I think, you know, in, in, in that sense, it reads, you know, it reads more like Nietzsche, where Nietzsche mm-hmm. doesn't mark his contradictions and doesn't say a different aspect of the understanding, does it? He just, you know, like, he leaves that to the reader to either get it wrong or whatever. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. you know, eight pages later after you said this, you know, this thing is is noble you like nobility is for morons right it's like and, and as we know and, and and as is confirmed in in my rereading of you know the scholarship linking the two everybody thinks that nietzsche has said that the noble is good and i don't mean that in the good bad good evil but like the noble is better than the slave and it's like right. holy fuck how can you read that and just ignore the passages where he says this is what made man interesting man would have been too stupid of a of a species without you know like but they yeah. do right like right. they just ignore or miss those places where it's like look the 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 noble is not the good guy here not simply the good guy Right. Well, there's so, there's so, so that's, much more that's nuance. That's where they're similar. Yeah, there, there's so much more nuance in all of these thinkers. Like, the issue for me that I... After this, we did, like, you know, six, seven of these podcasts, I was just trying to basically reconcile some of these positions with each other because nobody seems to want to do that. It, I mean, Deleuze was super confrontational against Hegel, which I, yep. I get sort of served its purpose. Yep. And then all of the followers of each of these movements are so polemical... Yep against the different versions of this like you get they've labeled it affirmationism which is sort of a jibe usually at like Deleuze and Nietzsche and then you have the dialecticians or the people on team negation and it's like I don't think any of these thinkers worked in those those categories that strictly or at least their conceptual delineations offer way more than simply I'm team affirmation I mean, my whole thing in terms of the Deleuze book was like with active force. Like, there's no such thing as active force. That's right. that's my line on reading the thing. There can't be, otherwise it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same thing about affirmation. There's no such thing as affirmation. It's not a thing that is distinct from negation. Like, there can't be. Right. Otherwise, right. that is the negated version of affirmation that makes it into a team process. But is it? I mean, that th- th- the thing that's frustrating for me is like. This has been a problem for me for a long time, and obviously in my book, I mean, if you just, even a cursory reading of it would say, look, he doesn't hate negation, he's no. just, is interested in something else, right. and, and and that's how I felt about it, I was, and I had a difficult time, I mean, that was 20 years ago for fuck's sake, like, negotiating, like, trying to figure out how to articulate what I'm doing that's... Not the same as negation, but neither is it simply different from it. Like, I had a hard time with that. There's long passages in that book where I struggle with it. And I'm fucking still struggling with it, right? right. We're still, we're, we're, we're doing this thing. So this idea that I'm team affirmation is just like, that's just, that's just lazy. 
No, it's it's <laughs> silly. Know? It's silly, but it you can see why people are like willing to make those jumps. Not because of your work lends it to that, but yeah, because no, no, right, right, because right. there are these camps, uh, like including your work, but like besides that, yeah. with Barad and people out in the like other fields. People latch on to these uh, kind of movements, and it's easy for them. So, like, let's say right. negation has been kind of thrown to the side for the past decade or something, or maybe even two decades. Now it's time to save negation. And this is what Benjamin right. Noyes exactly. does. It's like negation is actually the key to an ethical world. And it's like, man, did you read Hegel? Did you ever actually read Hegel? Because I don't think <laughs> that was ever. See, explicit. that's where. See, that's yeah. where I would argue. If you want to talk about the movement of historical change, it's it looks and smells like a dialectic that doesn't sublate at all, right? Yeah. Like there's no offhaven element to it. It's just like yes, no, yes, no, <laughs> yes, no, yes, yeah. no, yes, no. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. what the fuck? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that's the change we get in history. Is just like yes, no. Yeah. No, yes. Yes, no. <laughs> it's a lot of chaos, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, it's just, but it's just a, a non-engagement, right? It's not, there's, right. I mean, if, the, the problem is there's not enough alfhabening, which would be raising it and, you know, sus- maintaining the distinctions and suspending the differences between them. It's like, Oh, well, like that, in the actual you know, discourse, yeah, too. Yeah. Right, like, where's the fucking alfhaben? Like, I, I'm waiting for some alfhabens to happen. It just yeah. seems like it's yes, no, yes, no. <laughs> Doesn't you know. seem like we're able to do many alfhabens in scholarship. <laughs> Right. It's pretty like, tough. Yeah. So I, I just, in, in the history of rhetoric class, I, I just gave a midterm and one of the essay questions was basically like, in, in all, so I had them read Gorgias' Encomium of Helen, Plato's Gorgias, Augustine's um, De Magistro, and the, like chunks of book four of on Christian doctrine, and then Bacon, chunks of Bacon's on the advancement of learning and the uh, um, Novum Organum. Like one of the questions, like one of the consistent themes that we find in all of these texts, or most of these texts, is a um, sort of an anxiety about a a supposedly like f- like world of falsity or appearance or the, like surface simulacrum, uh, and then the the sort of the true world that it hides, and we get these in a number of figures, like you know the the, the semblance art distinction that that Plato makes. Um, or the, 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 the signifier signify distinction that Augustine makes, um, uh, or like the, 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 the world, the scientific world as it really is, and the sort of like mystery of, of um, or the obfuscating power of, of language. And rhetoric is always sort of like, you know, at the center of this. Right. And what right. I kind of realized in articulating this question and, and imagining responses and reading them is, it really does just seem like, yeah, there's no sublation. It's just like, yeah, you know, Gorgias basically claims that there is no distinction, that language produces all of these, like, all of these effects among others. Plato's like, this is mere semblance. It's terrible. And Plato, Augustine, mm-hmm. and, and Bacon are all like, you know, this is this is pure semblance, and either you can use it to reveal the truth, or you can use it to obscure it. But that that dichotomy, there's like there's that's no right. sublation between them. There's mm-hmm. no sublation, but that's where it's cool when on Hegel, this is this is paragraph forty seven, and it speaks to that perfectly. Like this, I mean, I swear to God, this is a height. This is a sentence out of being in time. Like mm-hmm. I mean, I think it might actually be. 
Appearance is the arising and passing away that does not itself arise and pass away, but is in and of itself and constitutes the actuality and the movement and the life of truth. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that, you know, that, that's an aufhebung from those kinds of positions, you know? Right. But ap- appearance is the arising and pass away, passing away that constitutes the actuality and the movement and the life of truth. Right? Like, that's truth is appearance. I mean, that's the thesis. Yeah. That's a nice, concise well, I mean, it, little... it is, after all, the phenomenology exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. of, of spirit. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, there's so another it's, good... It's... Yeah, there's another good little... I'm not getting exactly right, but it's like, the only thing behind... It's a Hegel quote. The only thing behind appearances are what we put there. Or like, you know, yeah. so it's like, it's, it, it is a phenomenology. And I feel like that's something that people also forget when we read this. It's like, I mean... He make he's also written a philosophy of nature, so don't get me wrong, he's expanded beyond the the simple phenomenology of spirit, but all of this is at a base level incorporating the movement of subjectivity into various discourses that have suppressed that. You know? But but that's where like if you know, if you tell the story that Nathaniel just told, it's like it's fucking two thousand years for one goddamn mouth haybone. Like one, you know, it's like we've got semblance or appearance and we've got, you know, and rhetoric or we got, you know, over here, truth, knowledge, philosophy. And it took motherfucking 1800 years yeah. to say, hey, maybe we don't have to choose. Right. <laughs> right. right. Um, now, again, still, I would say it's still the movement of truth. Like, why does it have to be? I mean, like my response to this would be, why? I mean, why does the arising and passing away that is appearance have to constitute the movement of truth. Like why the payoff is always going to be on the side of truth, even when its content is now the realm of appearance, but Mm -hmm. still you're still playing the same kind of the truth game, right? It's just that now truth is, is mobile and not propositional as opposed to just saying it's just mobile and you know, it's just mobile, you know, there's, and, and and I would be well. I mean, my inclination is much more Foucault in that way. It's like, well, look, truth is clearly propositional because that's how it's been taken for the most part, mm-hmm. right? Like for the most, in other words, it's a rhetorical way of saying truth is not some God term just handed down. Truth is how people use it and how people have used it is in that propositional sense. So rather than fighting against that propositional sense, just say like, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, the least you can say is that Hegel's truth is not Aristotle's truth. So, I mean, right. as long as, yeah. long as yeah. we're not saying that Hegel is like some sort of fundamentalist, right. where there is a substrate beneath the appearance that's that right. can be dri- like riven out by the dialectic, that's not right. the case. It's sim- he's still committed to truth, I think, almost just on a logical like level. Well, right? I think like, you're right. I think like, he, I, yeah. I very, in fact, that was one of the thoughts that I had. It's like, fuck, I probably feel like I need to go read the science of logic. Although I think I would probably hate that, but, but nevertheless, no, I, I think you're right. It is a logical, a, a commitment to a logic where truth has to be the, the upshot, but yeah, you're right. There's no substrate beneath appearance. He's trying to say, how do you think the coming to be and passing away? Like right. that's it now. And, and again, I still think, I mean, I think I said this a couple of meetings ago, but like, I still think, that's a book I want to read, which is any thinker of any note today is a process thinker, yeah. period. 
But there are very different ways of thinking process. Mm-hmm. And now let's try to parse out the ways in which someone like Deleuze is different than someone like Zizek, for example. Right. And, and not because of one is committed to truth and the other one is secretly hiding in a pit. No, this is where, st- for me, style. It's like, these are different styles. So the proper name Zizek and the proper name Deleuze, these are stylistic differences. And those stylistic differences are really fucking substantive, right? Mm-hmm. They're really fucking important. They matter a great deal. But that's what they are. They're just ways of thinking movement. They're both thinkers of movement, mm-hmm. you know, and they're both thinkers of fucking negation and affirmation. Like, you can't not be. It's just right. a question of how they operate and which are the gener- generating principles, right? Like, the whole team negation versus team, you know, so right. and, and again, the thing that I've always liked—I mean, the thing that I always like about Zizek is that he's funny, like because yeah. uh, that's always for me one of the things. Like there ain't a fucking thing funny in this book, right? There's no. not, there, you know. Um, no. So and there that sense of seriousness, and that's always been one of the things for me that I attach to a thinking of negation coming from Nietzsche is that sense of laughter, right? Mm-hmm. Like really, as a sort of tonal, stylistic, whatever dimension of it's not an extrinsic it's not like oh occasionally they make jokes it's a, it's it, the thinking itself is funny right you know or has right. has a comedic side to it or whatever the fuck that means mm-hmm. and Zizek's like that right like Zizek is funny you know yeah Zizek is funny I mean he's so strange because there's nobody that really writes like that or that even really tries to like both commit to the seriousness of a thinker like Hegel like he'll get in the weeds yeah with this stuff and there won't be a funny section for maybe even an entire chapter but then he'll tell some super raunchy joke like in the middle of something and it like breaks it all up i mean i I don't know it's just weird like trying to locate that style in in a in a you know genre of styles that seems to be more committed to that that serious tone that's right to the seriousness so zizek to me is really very much the exception in that lineage because I don't mind seriousness. It's just, it, obviously, it can get boring eventually. Yeah. Like, Hegel's seriousness, I think, the, ironically, there's levity when it gets even darker. So, like, uh, when he starts, like, he, he engages in some poetic imagery, like, here and there, which I, I yeah. wanted to just bring up to you guys. Um, yeah. I think it is at the Not bottom. Not the painter of, who's red, red and black. Yeah, uh, there was another... Red and green, I guess it was. Okay, so this is 52. It's just, like, such a kind of grotesque, like, uh, invocation of the understanding. It's right at the... This is the first sentence of 52. Yeah, yeah. I I, I noted that as well. I was like, damn, this is intense. Yeah, I'm just like, why is this so intense? Like, why does it need to be written this way? But that, to me, is almost like... That's where the levity, <laughs> the levity in Hegel's when he goes to this, this crazy, weird, dark image. The bruta- that's brutality yeah. of like it yeah. being flayed and seeing its skin <laughs> wrapped around a lifeless knowledge of its conceits and its conceits, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like, like huh. it's a br- brutality. It doesn't seem, well, there's nothing like, yeah, go ahead. T- tell me what you think of this little bit on 48, because I thought it was hilarious, but I, I genuinely, because I can't. I want to believe that maybe there's a little bit of self-reflection here, but I'm also doubting it. So this is on 48, like, one, two, three, four, five, six, let's say, like, seven lines down, uh, after he's finished talking about logic and um, 
like we have to attend to the method of this movement. If this comment sounds boastful or revolutionary, and I am far from adopting such a tone, it should be noted that the current opinion, like that, like yeah, he has to <laughs> see that, right? Yeah, he has to see right. that. That's because like, he's done nothing but this. That's mm-hmm. all he's done is boasting about how this is the end of fucking history. <laughs> yeah, like he is the revolutionary point of history, right? right? right. I mean, that has to. There has to be some. Imagine if he's giving a lecture, he, he, he has to, like, wink, right? Maybe? <laughs> Eventually. There have to be moments, I think. But any, like, if you want to consider him either a savant or... There's some sort of genius going on, right? I mean, you have oh, to admit yeah. that. Yeah. But most people like that. There's a le- also a level of delusion, right? I mean, if you look... Yeah. I mean, again, I don't, wanna, I don't know why I'm bringing up Kanye West. But, like, at least when he was at his creative, like, peak... Right. There's what is it? What is driving that to some extent is delusion and not self-awareness. So the the greatness that he was able to achieve was because he was like blind to his own faults and deficiencies and was simply like going after something that seemed unachievable. I think maybe maybe you could uh, give Hegel a similar analysis there. Where like the impetus. It's it's really. Yeah. Yeah, It's really interesting, though, the, the, the extent to which. What we can locate at the comedic is so dependent on an authorial intention. Like, it's so totally... In other words, right. like, maybe the comedic is what becomes super dark and is just motherfucking dark and bleak, right? Oh, like, yeah. why yeah. do we have to have a notion of, well, he was... That was a kind of tongue-in-cheek bleakness. It's like, no, no, right, no. Right. That's motherfucking bleakness. And that, so then you get into the question of what's the comedic for, and tragic, and we get back into, the, into those polls. But those mm. are polls that are worth messing up, too, right? I mean... Insofar as, like, yeah, like, I mean, it's interesting because I like the seriousness, but I also like the smart-ass mm-hmm. elements that pull me out, that pull me out of the seriousness so that I'm not just living in that to- right. the totally serious. And, and I, I agree with you, Nate, passages like the one, the one that you mentioned, because I marked it, I was, it was kind of like a, um, it was fun, right? Yeah. Like, whether or not it was tongue-in-cheek or, or comedic, in some ways, is kind of secondary because mm-hmm. what it was was something other than simply the systematic delineation of the movement of spirit. Well, right. it, it, was, it, it was the intensification was, of that to the, its own like okay breaking yeah. point, right? I, mean, I, I think of the the Deleuze um, versions of irony and and comedy and, and, and I mean, comedy, the, yeah, right, like the the. Um, the movement of irony of the, like the self perpetually self undoing itself with the comedy movement of taking itself to the point of its own un- undoing, which sounds a whole yeah. lot like you know, <laughs> just like talking about uh, making mathematical formula seem alive by filling skin and wrapping them around them. <laughs> <laughs> right. You said <laughs> don't dirty the gun. <laughs> right. Don't get the gun dirty. Right. Can we pause on that short bit again, though? So, at, yeah. at fifty-two, does it does sure. your translation start with the excellent? Yeah, what is it's a weird say? subject okay. of that verb or that of that yeah, sentence. So the the excellent not only cannot escape the fate of being deprived of life and spirit, of being flayed and then seeing its skin wrapped around lifeless knowing, and that lifeless knowing's vanity. So I was just Very wondering similar. why the introduction of this. Of the excellent, first of all, because I don't think we've I had seen to go that. back. I oh, had to go he... back. 
for that. No, no, no. I mean, I, I had the same problem because I was like the excellent. Where did that? My, so, I mean, all I'm presuming is that insofar as it's a critique, it's like even good ideas have to go through this process. Right, right, I mean, right. And that's all but, that I took it to mean. But I don't, the, the, the particular terminology of the excellent, I don't, it didn't. I, my guess is, to me. this is just from, I think I read it in Zizek. It might be a parallel with like reason or self-consciousness. So the excellent would be like a, a term for that step beyond the understanding. So, but the, I mean, this points to what we were talking about earlier, where it's like that tension between the understanding and its supposed sublation in reason. Right. It's like, it's not, you don't just get to go past it. Right. So right. if, if that is a term for reason, it can't escape the fate it can't of escape. being, it's got, it's, it's gotta be flayed and it's gotta have this lifeless shit. Like that's right. That's the game, right? Like it's yeah. just going to go down that road. And earlier that was a good thing. <laughs> now it's like this horrific thing, but, but rather, you know, we recognize yeah. even in this fate, the power that the excellent exercises over the hearts, if not over the minds. In other words, like that's closer to the sense certainty side right. of things than it is to. So, I mean, in this sense, and I mean, this is a this is a conclusion that I kind of agree with. Is like, there's actually very little thinking in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not something that happens for us very often. Like, in terms of the requirements that he's establishing for thinking, most human beings, like, literally n- never think, yeah. right? Uh, in this sense, you know, right. and and even those of us who who fancy ourselves thinkers, we don't think a lot. We don't think all the time in fact it's really fucking rare and hard to think yeah, when yeah. you kind of just happen upon it like you're like oh uh, all of a sudden i'm thinking <laughs> just out of nowhere well, thinking, i'm actually thinking, thinking happens that's i mean yeah. that's where you get like it's a weird idealism then yeah. right like i mean it's not like the sort of berkeley version of like it's just like the thinking substance that's not inside of a human but i mean um, it's it's a very weird like th- yeah thinking happens in the sense of shit happens mm-hmm. right like yeah sh- the, that middle voice thing that Heidegger's big on right and that's also a Deleuzian sentiment too yeah thinking no I know yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I I know this is my experience and I always introduce my classes is like we're gonna presume that thinking is very difficult and rarely happens uh, and that you have to. But it, it, there's a lot of just like preparatory work for it. like really I feel like the only work that I do for thinking like I never do the thinking and it's only about right. staging right. the creating the conditions of possibility for new connections to come out and then once yeah. you know and those rare occasions where some new connection comes about then suddenly like everything flat it's like a gestalt movement and you know right. there there's just like this whole new image that has to be or this whole new terrain that you know, has to be explored. And, and that's just like almost grunt work, right? The... Almost, yeah. But that, that's the example that he gave when he was using the triangle and he was going through the issue of the proof of the triangle and how it's yeah. completely removed from actuality and whatnot. And the thing that kept occurring to me was, what about the guy who discovered, whoever was at Archimedes, I don't know who discovered the 180 Euclid. degrees or whatever, oh. the right triangle. A squared versus D squared equals C squared. I, whoever it was, right? But... There was the moment of discovery of the right angle and the lengths of sides. Mm -hmm. That moment seems like it was a moment of thinking. Everything in history involving triangles since then hasn't been that, Mm -hmm. right? It it has been the sort of 
demonstration of the proof, the playing out of the proof, the, you know, so, but, but that's to your point, Nathaniel, of like, there was, there, in, in terms of triangles and the history, there was a moment of thinking that happened for somebody, Pythagoras, Archimedes, whoever the fuck it was, and then all of the rest of triangles history has not involved thinking, right? Like, it's well, just been the playing out of that one moment. For right? absolute spirit, right? Right. Right. But but then there's the because you know he's got the two levels of understanding and so like that like every you know what we're talking about everyone has to spirit might on a on the scale of A to Z spirit might be at an M but That's I'm only right. at a D like I still have to go through the activity of thinking. You know that thing, but it is still a repetition. But you don't. But 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 in in a sense, I mean, that's where I think he's right. Is that like most people don't, right? Like you most don't have don't. to really. You don't have to. I mean, even even. I mean, we're talking about geometry here. Even when you took your high school geometry class, you didn't learn. You didn't think about a squared plus b squared equals c squared. All you did was memorize that rule and apply it in particular situations. You never had to derive yeah. that rule. You know, you never had to think in the sense of developing a connection that hadn't been there before. Well, it doesn't become, you know, like in, like Plato, like this is the, 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 the two repetitions that drive Plato batty, right? That, you know, I can right. repeat to you, you know, all of these correct statements, all these true beliefs about the right triangle, but that doesn't mean that I have a living understanding that would allow me to manipulate it in different directions. And I can look at it from 15 different angles and see them all. Like I, you know, it's impossible to determine the difference from And it's the desire the to, so, but that's what, that's what Hegel I think shares with Plato is the, is the desire to separate mm -hmm. the two repetitions. Now he's not necessarily saying one is, you know, like better than, but one is like, there's a true repetition mm -hmm. and Deleuze fucking I mean, that's Deleuze's difference in repetition, right? There is the abstract repetition of generality, mm -hmm. and then there's true, true repetition, mm -hmm. right? And, and so that, that desire to distinguish between, like, sometimes it's the false movement of habit, sometimes something else happens, you know? Right. Well, this, this is something I can't, I don't know exactly the details of the argument, but in Zizek's long-ass book on Hegel, that's something that he sort of concedes to Deleuze in a way, where it's like, Hegel, one of the critiques of Hegel that he basically buys is that he can't think pure repetition. And so that's right. something that Deleuze was able to access. That's something that even, I think, Lacan, Zizek argues, was able to access in some way. But for Hegel, pure repetition without sublation is not possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, right. I don't know anything else beyond that, but I remember reading right. that in that. Yeah. Well, because the repetition has to be mediated, right? Like the it truth of the... The, right. the, the truth of the right triangle has to then be mediated within the understanding, but the understand the rep the repeated understanding has to be living, right? It can't just be the dead propositions that one has memorized. That's right. Right. Like I don't know about you all, but this is why I hated math in high school because I, I felt like all I was being asked to do was memorize formula. Yeah formula and then apply them and I didn't understand I've, I, I've always been someone that has to understand the rationale of the thing and like that just was not the important part right. of it what what can I so do with it like we can't do anything with it besides get this test right you know there's no well, it's not even that you can do plenty of things like I can just you know like monkey repeat a bunch of formula and build a bridge right for, from it but well, that doesn't mean yeah. I understand you know the, the, the you know to take on but that was language. see I got I got totally spoiled on that, and this is a I, one of my major early intellectual influences. Was like 
my I had this, the AP math classes were all the same teacher, and I was in those, and and his name was Steve Sorkin, and he he always the, his whole thing was uh, sheer memorization is for fucking monkeys. Like mm-hmm. you guys have to learn these things. And our final the final exams they were notorious because. And this was a long time then. It doesn't sound like a lot then, but you'd come in and there would be one question, just one question, and it would be a fairly simple-looking diagram. This is geometry. Fairly simple-looking diagrams, like find this angle. And that was it. That was the whole final exam, and it would take six hours. I mean, no joke, because he had designed these questions so that there were about 20 different pathways that you could follow, and they all went... You know, to certain, you know, some of them went 10 steps deep before you realized dead end. Some of them went two steps before dead end. But you had to go through a bunch of them in order to figure out. Now, the other side is, and this never happened to me, but it did happen to people I know, you could hit on the right one just sheerly accidentally, and you'd be done with the exam in 10 minutes. And it did happen for people. Like, they signed, and they're like, I'm done, I got it. 10, 10 minutes in, and everybody else is there for hours. Like ordering pizzas in and shit, but his, that was his whole thing. Was it's not enough to just memorize? Like, yeah, you have to do that. You've got to memorize the stuff, but you have to understand how these things operate, and you have, you know you have to exhibit. So, so fortunately for me, math was not that grunt, kind of grunt process right. at all. It was totally creative problem solving. Uh, well, this approach to learning. This was the issue for me with with math and with music when I first started learning music because. I, I was like, my grandma was like a classically trained uh, pianist and toured the country and was amazing. But she taught me like classically, which is basically you memorize pieces. So I, I learned a bunch of these pieces when I was like 10 or 11, did a few recitals, but I wasn't able or even encouraged to create anything on my own. So I just, yeah. lo- I just completely lost interest. It, was, it wasn't only until I picked it back up when I was like 18 in college and, and I'd just basically forgotten everything and relearned it, started making my own shit that I was able to, like, I like building stuff, but if I don't have the route or the means to do that with this information, I, I kind of get yeah. lost, right, you know? Right. And so well, I don't it seems think interesting to me, though. Oh, yeah, go, go finish up me, sorry. Oh, I was just, just going to say, like, because we were saying, you were saying earlier how, like, you know, Pythagoras or whoever invented the theory of the right triangle and then everything else was a repetition of that i also i mean just to qualify that i don't think you have to reinvent the wheel every time in order to build something useful either like this is another music thing but like i i don't have any knowledge about like the the specifics of engineering where like you're actually building the software and the instruments i simply use it and like build stuff that's already made you know what i mean and i I would like to think that I can make stuff that's like, I don't know, sometimes compelling, but I'm not inventing the thing, right? Somebody else had right. to do all that work for me to use the computer and the software and the different synthesizers. So I'm like sort of on the front end developer or whatever, like I'm on the surface of everything. But I, I right. think that's, so in a sense, I'm just repeating the triangle. Well, and, that, yeah. and that's, but that's also where... The people that we consider, I mean, I, you know, obviously in a little bit of a Van Halen mode for the last, you know, month or so, but I mean, you know, the guys who are kind of great musicians, they're the ones who remake the technology too, right? right they don't right. simply use the technology to make sounds that we, in, in combinations mm-hmm. of sounds we haven't heard before. But, you know, Van Halen is an example of that. Like, whatever one thinks of 
Eddie Van Halen and the whole rock god thing, which I'm glad right. it's passed and, you know, all those things. But nevertheless, like, the guy reinvented the fucking guitar. For sure. Like, yeah. which is just mind-blowing when you consider how many guitarists had existed mm -hmm. before him. Or someone like and Hendrix, you know. Hendrix, right? Yeah. Same kind of thing. Like, those guys who are the, the geniuses, they go back into the equivalent of the software, the yeah. interface, and start tinkering with that shit. Like, the, you know, the real musicians are just... Uh, obs right. I, I remember hearing stories from Stewart of REM finishing up their automatic one of the albums, mm -hmm. and and Michael Stipe like after sixteen hours straight of like he, you know he pulls away he's like if I ha if I move one more fucking electron around on this board I'm gonna lose my fucking mind and he has to, you know he has to go away for a few days because he's so immersed in the technology of the soundboard. This isn't right. about musical instruments. This no. is about yeah. the whole recording operation. So yeah, yeah. It's amazing to me how quickly we've kind of, that this discourse has shifted into a, a very much so like a humanist discourse of like subject to object where repetition mm -hmm. only happens like mediated through the subject. And it is the subject that then has like this sort of abstracted um, power to be able to... Right. Like right. it isn't is is now no long is is a capacity rather than a repetition, right? Right. Where, mm -hmm. I I mean. On the one hand, I I absolutely like not all repetitions are made the same, and the kind of like you know repetition of something within the consciousness might be different than other kinds of repetitions. But it it would it'd be interesting to sort of now like go back and think about. You know, try to imagine this along a strata that doesn't think about these as true or false repetitions and that like, you know, the monkey repetition now does something like it. The monkey repetition is still a repetition that is no more or See, less that's true where, or false. That's where, yeah, that's that's where I want to say, you know, even with difference in repetition. You know, my aversion has always been to that first sentence. The, yeah. uh, you know, his his aversion to generality and the concept. And it's like, that has to do something too, man. I mean, that mm -hmm. has to be, you know, like you could ask the question is like, what is this style of repetition that enables a blade of grass to photosynthesize, right? There, there had to have been a lot of false turns, right? There had mm -hmm. to have been a whole lot of blades of grass or the equivalent thereof that didn't, you know, that didn't photosynthesize and right. something had to happen that enabled that photosynthesis. And that to me is, it's no different than that. That's, he's the Eddie Van Halen of grass, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> or the Hendrix or, 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 or whatever, like right. something was able to transform or the, you know, symb symbiogenesis, right? Is my, mm -hmm. my example. But but see, I, I take that first line a little bit different. I mean, I don't, I don't see a discordance between what is philosophy and difference and repetition in that sense, because I, I, I think in both of them, there, there, there still is not repetition within generality, right? Because that would be, you know, it would be the repetition of one transcendent model of, say, photosynthesis that then yeah. gets repeated across all of its instances. But you'd have to say that photosynthesis isn't photosynthesis isn't photo photosynthesis. And That's the repetition right. of any one of these things, like the true repetition of it, isn't that it modeled, it took something else that's modeled and then repeated right. it. It's that this like the singularity of this intersection or constellation of forces now exerts its force and forces right. response to it. And it's that force, like it's the exertion of the force and the force of the response to it that is the repetition itself. So, I mean, 
that's where that's where something natural like grass and photosynthesis is actually an easier and better yeah. example than a person learning. Right. Because a person learning can be easily misunderstood. So it's it's better to be like, okay, the singularity of the encounter is what produced the necessity of what we now call photosynthesis along a series of differential repetitions. So let's can we go back and then try to rearticulate, you know, the like the understanding of the, the right triangle? Because I I think it would look something like this that yeah. you know, rather than, you know, I have a a copy of Pythagoras's or Euclid's theorem in my head and like I'm able it's rather it was Euclid Euclid that's who it was yeah. it was fucking Euclid um, shout out to Steve Sorkin man he taught me well <laughs> let's make sure make sure that makes the actual episode <laughs> yeah because the Pythagorean theorem is about finding the hypotenuse but finding the lengths of of the of the, the lines of the triangle but I think it's Euclid right. anyway um, but anyway it's more that that like, think about the myriad of repetitions that could strike you at a particular yeah. time that sort of like lodges different connections together that allows you to now navigate a right triangle like you weren't able to before. It's not a capacity that you can deploy or not deploy. It's a set of relations that get snapped into place. And by the way, just because, you know, like, it doesn't mean that all of them are snapped into like it doesn't mean that there is a right way of snapping them into place and a wrong way of snapping right. them into place it's like you know i when it snaps into place for me it might open up pathways that allow me to think about some other fucking thing totally differently when it happens for right. you right instead of photos instead of photosynthesis it could have been chemical synthesis of of oxygen Correct. which would have produced all different kinds of life forms it just happened the way that it happened yeah, 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 exactly. That it's, and, and yeah, that, 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 that the, the, like, like, how do we think learning without fidelity? You know, that, I think that's sort of like, what's that question here? Right. And I, I mean, I think the, the attention to those contingencies is precisely what Hegel's at least trying to get at with his agree, complication yeah. of the, the mathematical thinking. And I think it directly yeah. prefigures, or at least this is Zizek's argument, uh, it direct it prefigures almost directly like the the quantum sort of approach with Niels Bohr or even Heisenberg, yeah. you know, where you're the contingencies that were previously suppressed. <laughs> you want to go after Barad? I know what's driving this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The con the contingencies that were previously you know suppressed by Einstein or whoever were then directly incorporated into the quantum theoretical system by Niels Bohr. In, into think, the system rather than right. being extrinsic, yeah. Right, and of course you're not going to be able to fully assimilate those contingencies, but Well, you that, can't assimilate all contingency, that's what makes that's it contingency. That's the definition, right. But uh, that, I mean, that approach had never been seen before, right? I mean, at least, yeah. until Hegel, right, at this nation phenomenological stage, and then until Niels Bohr, who I think is like the Hegelian theoretical physicist... Uh, sort yeah. of. I think, I mean, I, I don't know, at least it seemed like it was, that approach reflects what you were talking about, Nathaniel, with the, with the attention to the relations that produces your either capacity to learn or to know or whatever, you know. I, I, I like that. I mean, I, I, that's good. I mean, it, because it provides an explanation for, you know, both the necessity of the separation, but the separation is always, the separation of the two repetitions, but it's always provisional. And um, so, like, you know, both repetitions are going to go down 
different kinds of paths, but mm-hmm. you don't know what that path's going to be until there are subsequent repetitions. Right. Well, what I like about it is it allows you to think the sort of fidelity repetition as a prompt for producing real repetition, right? Yeah. And rather than think about the, the, the fact that, you know, the fidelity repetition is never going to actually be faithful and therefore there's a right. lack. Or a a failure. Everything's a failure. Right. But right. no, it's, it's like here's one style of provoking true repetitions. Try to be faithful, right? Right. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Because you can't be. Yeah. You know, and, and, and by the way, that's not a failure. It's, and it's not a lack of to- totality. I mean, but that's where I feel like you got to lose. I guess it's just important to me still that you lose the metaphorics of negation, lack, unity, you know, all of like that you start. That's where, I mean, multiplicity becomes, I, I guess, even more important in that regard in terms of if the investment is in provoking. In this thinking, you need a self-identity in order to other, right? In order, like, you have to have a stable, relatively, right? Like, it's not stable, stable. It's not Cartesian. It's not a monad, right? Like, but you have to have a relatively stable, the self-identity. His stuff on self-identity in here is really good Mm because where he he will both say self-identity is a thing, and then he'll say, but self-identity itself is already constituted by the very movement that we're talking about. So you have to have a self-identity in order to have another. And that, in that case, it looks like the other is coming from outside. I could probably find this passage that I'm, and rather than try to, you know, paraphrase. Well, he, he talks about absolute identity as something that's dead. Hmm. Oh, so this is on, this is the... Here we, we have, a, in 55, um, there's a paragraph break in our translation uh, for the last paragraph of 55. For us, begins precisely because existence is defined as species, is a simple thought, news, simplicity, is substance. Mm-hmm. Um, but on account of its simplicity or self-identity, it appears fixed and enduring. But this self-identity is no less negativity. Therefore, its fixed existence passes over into its dissolution. Dissolution, in this case, means encountering alterity, right? Right. The the determinateness seems at first to be due entirely to the fact that it is related to an other. In other words, what gives you this notion of an other is the belief in self-identity. And its movement seems imposed on it by an alien power. But having its otherness within itself and being self-moving, again, with all the provisions around Mm self-moving that we began with, uh, is just what is involved in the simplicity of thinking itself. So, I I mean, I take that to be exactly that point, is that there's a creation of a, what we would call, provisional self-identity, which allows otherness to impact it or allows contingency to impact it. So this is like... In biology, this is autopoiesis, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you have to have a sense of a cell as a self-identical entity before you can think about, you know, cells interacting with each other to become an organism, you know, or right. something, something like that. So, and that's the thing, let's be honest, that's the thing that all the eco and network people just don't get, right? Because they're just no. all about assembling cells together. That's where, to me, there's no critique of identity just by saying there's a lot of them. You know, I mean, there's no problematizing of the function of identity just by saying, hey, look, you're made up of an ecology or, hey, you know, you're not critiquing individuality by saying I'm part of an ecology. 
which I think a lot of people think you are. And they're like, no, right. you're just saying there's more nodes in this system yeah. than just one. But that doesn't do anything to the logic of self-identity unless you do what he's doing here. Right, right. And I think that also, I mean, it complicates at least a little bit Barad's thesis, like her, her little slogan that it's relations before relata, you know? Right. Well, it's like when you take autopoesis, it's like, no, it's, I mean, it's at least both. You have to have both. You have like, both at the same time. Be- That's- right, yeah. There's relata before relations just as there are relations before relata. You know? Right, and that and that really is that's the hard thing to think is yeah. because I I mean I was always skeptical of autopoiesis for that reason is because it was like well we need self identity so we can have otherness and and mm-hmm. any kind of movement at all and I was always skeptical of that because but then I, I read a really interesting article this is way back in grad school of like well autopoiesis is really exopoiesis or allopoiesis mm-hmm. because you know the auto that comes to be auto is already right. in relationship to. To an out, it has to be right. in relationship to an outside. So it's a question of partly of emphasis, mm-hmm. right? In terms of, but also you know, as you're pointing out, Nate, like you have to start to then think the simultaneity of the auto and the allo in that regard, and stop with the origin question of self other, right? Mm-hmm. Like so that's so in that sense you would say, Levinas doesn't go far enough, right? Because he's just saying, okay, the other is the condition of the emergence of the I. It's like, well, all you're doing is kind of, in my world, like flipping the dialectical coin. Like what's really necessary is to think the simultaneity of those. Mm